It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. Today's show is brought to you by Outdoor Research. The idea for what became Outdoor Research was likely conceived of by unkempt mountaineers in a stinky, damp, uncomfortable snow cave in the Alaska Range. But since those days of yore, OR has become an apparel company also dedicated to breezier, sunnier, more, shall we say, aromatic outdoor pursuits like spending a fun day at the crag. With that in mind, the runout invites you to check out OR's cragging collection. Shorts, pants, hoodies, jackets, and more for movement and protection on the rock. When the day might involve some gobies and a bit of rain and snow, but is more likely to end up around a campfire or at a local watering hole than over a sputtering stove in a whiteout. So find everything you need for a day at the crag or that soul-scrubbing alpine route at OutdoorResearch.com or use their handy shop locator to find your local retailer. Outdoor Research is a proud sponsor of The Runout. If I told you this episode is about a time in climbing when the top climbers of the day were locked into a heated argument over the rules of our sport, everything from the hardware we used to the style we climbed in, what era might you guess? Or what if I told you this episode was also about the best climber in the world at the time, a professional free soloist who pioneered thousands of cutting-edge routes at the upper limits of free climbing difficulty, and even paid his way by going around to give slideshows and spraying about his achievements? Who might you guess? The fact that you could pick almost any year in climbing and virtually be right says so much about our sport, but I can almost guarantee you that very few of you might ever guess the name Paul Preuss, the young Austrian climber from the early 1900s, who is arguably one of the most influential climbers to have ever lived. This is Andrew Bischerat, and I'm here with my co-host, Chris Kaluse. And today we're speaking to Dave Smart, a founding editor of Gripped Magazine, who's just released a new biography about Paul Preuss. This is true geeky climbing history, so listener beware. But what's so interesting about Preuss is that despite being dead for over 100 years, his ideas were so progressive and also so provocative that they remain relevant a century later. I hope you find this conversation as interesting as I did. Please make sure you get a copy of Dave's book. It's called Paul Preuss, Lord of the Abyss, Life and Death at the Birth of Free Climbing. It's a pretty quick read, and Dave did an excellent job of researching this subject and fleshing out this unsung but extremely influential founder of our sport. Thanks for listening, and our deepest apologies for the recent delay in putting out an episode. We had one recorded a couple weeks ago about Alex Honnold's nude expose in ESPN magazine, but Chris and I decided it wasn't all that funny, and there were too many jokes about balls. So we decided to lock it up along with all our other lost tapes that will no doubt be used to slander our characters and bring shame upon our families one day, long after we're both dead. Until then, the show goes on. All right, so Chris, you have a midlife crisis in I the do. works. I do, I do, actually. And, um, I've had it going on for yeah, months I, I years, seen- actually. Midlife is a long time, Um, and you've been in crisis now for some time, but it's coming to a head with a a recent purchase, I hear you. Well, I actually didn't make the purchase. Uh, My lovely girlfriend slash baby mama uh, surprised me with a one wheel, which is this sort of skateboardy thing with the big fat tire in the middle of it. And uh, I'd been kind of researching them and tried one a 
like a month and a half ago or maybe a month ago. And uh, I actually basically had decided that it was too expensive toy to get. And then she got me one as she said, the father of the year award. So how about that? <laughs> um, but anyway, awesome. anybody hasn't seen these, they're like, uh, it's kind of like a sideways Segway skateboardy kind of thing. Um, way cooler than a Segway, but a lot of the same technology of like sensors that kind of make you go directions you want to go just by sort of thinking about it. And uh, anyway, um, unfortunately, my deductible is not paid right now. So, um, you know, we'll see what happens in terms of broken bones and, and that sort of thing. But well, the, the Bisharat family has, has met their deductible, so we can come over and, and help you. Yeah, totally. How to, how to ride <laughs> this the whole gang, yeah. Piper, Bree, whoever. Yeah. So tonight, I think we must be the only podcast ever to have two episodes in one year where we talk about Paul Preuss, who is a sort of obscure climber from the early uh, 20th century, 1910. He was doing a lot of his ascents. And so I think that that is a record that yeah, we should totally. be proud of. Because what he came up when, when was the, what was the other episode he came up in? He he came up when um, when we talked about Jim Reynolds' free solo That's of Fitzroy right. as sort of this um, ethical preface to this idea of whether uh, you know a solo really counts unless you can climb up and back down, so of avoiding the repels. And is that sort of the purest style possible? Because apparently Paul Preuss was against repelling, but we can get into that because we are here tonight with. Dave Smart, who's the founding editor of Gripped Magazine, longtime climber and first ascensionist, and he's just written a new book about Paul Price. So thanks for being here, Dave. Thanks a lot for inviting me. Now, um, I'm sure we've just butchered a lot of details <laughs> about um, no, not really. about Paul not really. Price. But uh, I, I just I'm going to set this up in um, with a joke, which I hope it doesn't offend you, but. Um, <laughs> This is. Uh, I can't wait. This, yeah, you have to apologize uh, before everything you say in 2019. So, um, I was at dinner with my wife just now, and she was asking what our podcast was going to be about tonight. And I, you know, described who you are. I described who we were talking about uh, about Paul Preuss, and and her comment was, "So you're going to be interviewing the Dwayne Raleigh of Canada about the Alex Honnold of 1910." <laughs> And um, <laughs> I don't know if that's a fair description or not, but maybe that could be a starting point. Yeah, well, maybe. Um, actually, the rise of uh, climbing media did play a big role in, in the career of Paul Preuss. He was involved with uh, the first commercial climbing magazines. He wrote in them. He was a, a regular controversialist writing about climbing style and so on in the first uh, climbing magazines that were largely uh, condemned by the Alpine Club and other groups as full of wild and irresponsible ideas. Hmm. And uh, Paul Preuss was certainly one of the authors of uh, many of the ideas that were thought of that way. The comparison to, to, between me and Dwayne Raleigh, I don't, I don't know, I've met Dwayne a few times, seems like a nice guy. Um, <laughs> in, in many ways, uh, Paul Preuss <laughs> was not like Alex Honnold, though. I mean, mm -hmm. it's a c convenient enough comparison and... Uh, Alex Honnold actually refers to Preuss in his book, uh, Preuss's Death. The, uh, the main difference is for Alex Honnold, free soloing is something he goes and does sometimes, or a lot, as one of the climbing styles he has available to him. Mm. Paul Preuss 
didn't always solo, but he always climbed to the most exacting of his own personal standards with two exceptions, which he openly admitted. That kind of climbing wasn't a style that Paul Proyton did. It was how he climbed all the time. How, so before we get into too much of the nitty gritty of, of who Preuss was, maybe you could just try to set up from a in the high level, you know, thirty thousand foot view for our audience. Sure, that's yeah, ever yeah. heard who who is this guy, and 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 maybe tell us why you got interested in writing a book about him. About well, him. Preuss was, you, you know, I think you referred to him as sort of uh, I can't remember the word you use, obscure or something, and from. A North American point of view, or at least from an American point of view, that's uh, much more true than it is in Europe, where he's considered one, like Reinhold Messner wrote a book that went into uh, two editions about him, founded his whole series of museums around some equipment he got uh, from one of Preuss's uh, lovers, also founded a whole uh, annual award around Preuss for people climbing in his uh, you know, continuing what Master believes to be the spirit of Paul Preuss. In Europe, he's seen as one of three or four really seminal figures in the development of climbing. And in fact, when you look at the development of free climbing, it was Preuss who played a big role even in the separation of rock climbing from mountaineering so that it became a separate sport. And the definition of free climbing as basically what we now understand free climbing to be where equipment is there to catch you if you fall, but you cannot use it and uh, consider the climb to be free. From a Canadian point of view, American climbing, it differs from Canadian climbing, especially in history, in that Americans largely invented or credit themselves with having invented the rock climbing that's in the United States. Climbing in Canada came here much later, and it came from uh, people who came from Germany, from Austria, and uh, from the United Kingdom. And these stories about uh, German climbing and things happening in the Eastern Alps kind of became integrated into uh, Canadian climbing. And Paul Preuss was somebody who people spoke about a lot. And he was this sort of shadowy, mystical kind of lunatic figure in your mind when you just pick up bits and pieces. And so I've always been curious about who he really was. And uh, so I've been putting together bits of uh, research and thoughts about him for a long time. And over the past uh, five years, I uh, did more and more research and the book came together. So it was, it was just a coincidence then that, you know, this, this other free solower is on everybody's minds uh, <laughs> for the last couple of years that, that your, your, um, project came to culmination? Well, the project was beginning to come to culmination before, uh, because it takes about two years, two and a half years for a book to come from writer and go through all the editing and fact-checking process and uh, go into print. I mean, there are some convenient uh, similarities between the, the two people, but in terms of their personality, what they were like, the climbing milieu they were in, and the fact that Preuss ha did not also, like something like sport climbing uh, would have uh, been total anathema to, to Paul Preuss. And How would you describe his, uh, his ethical framework? His uh, basic ethical framework was that you should never do anything 
like that you should always be climbing far below your actual maximum ability. So you should only ever climb what you can down climb and that any use of a piton or putting your weight on the rope at all, even when you're, uh, when you're rappelling, invalidates a climb. Those things can be used by guides and beginners and people like that, but that to use them at all invalidates any kind of a climb. Uh, so even like he knew that people were climbing hard in on sandstone in Saxony, uh, for instance, but it didn't matter to him because they were also using uh, pitons placed in holes they drilled in the rock. And there was a big debate, like, should a climb, should an entire pitch in Saxony have one bolt or two? And Royce's answer to that was, it's, a, it's an irrelevant question because even by having one, you invalidate the climb completely. So he was probably terribly popular with all, all these other climbers if he's rolling around telling everyone they, their, their climbing is invalid. He was uh, not always terribly popular. He, he was also Jewish and was uh, subjected to anti-Semitic comments about what he thought, that he was, you know, that Jews were people who didn't want to fit in with the rest of the group. They wanted to draw attention to themselves and so on. But in the, he tended to get along very well. He tended to be very popular with people. He was very well-dressed. He was a, a uh, highly cultured person. He spoke several languages. Climbers loved him. People, he grew up with one foot in Vienna and another foot in, uh, in the country, in Altause. And both country people and city people related to him and, and liked him. And so... He was very disarming, and people who went against his views, they did it carelessly at first, but they found themselves marginalized in the end. Because in climbing this, it's reductive, but you can't take away the reality that just walking up to something you've never seen before and climbing without equipment is in some way a profound statement. It may be very foolish as well, but people accepted that this was an idealized form of climbing. He started out thinking everyone should do this. But by the time he died, that wasn't his perspective. By the time he died, he was saying things like, uh, other people can use pitons or whatever, but my way is to exemplify this, this ethic, this pure ethic of uh, purity. He was 27 when he died, so he he had some significant uh, maturity. It sounded like some, uh, <laughs> some at that at that yeah. point though. He had he had uh, was you know was he very serious kind of priggish person who was in your face about some of these ideas, or or did he kind of no he wasn't uh, he was a notorious he loved to party he was a he was a yeah. uh, famous for his uh, uh, drunken uh, bouldering when he was in the city he sung. Viennese street song while he climbed. The people in the countryside loved him, partly because he was uh, he could relate to them very easily. It was a very different kind of discourse. Uh, there was nothing kind of anodyne or or bitter, or in terms of his discourse with his friends. Some of his friends were surprised because he used their climbing as examples in his articles. Uh, but typically, they ended up. <laughs> working it out right so there wasn't these like um sometimes with these in 
when bolts get chopped in climbing areas, there's there's uh, people uh, become very acrimonious, to say the least. But it wasn't like that, partly because he didn't actually remove pe- remove pitons and things like that. Like he didn't stop other people from doing it their way. What's interesting about this guy is that uh, you you can sort of retroactively trace so much of climbing culture and and where we are today back to mm-hmm. him. But his presence is very much a shadow presence. You don't necessarily associate Paul Price as being the one of the founders of just simply the idea of an ethical debate in climbing, and you know, among other ideas about what free climbing is and uh, how to approach mountains mm-hmm. with this in mind. I mean, you reference that you know he's he's a much stronger figure, you know, um, among guys like Messner um, in Europe. Um, maybe us idiots in the U.S. don't just don't know climbing <laughs> history as well. But it, but he certainly, I, I, I feel like his, uh, his his legacy here, maybe not everywhere, but in a lot of places, it's been forgotten. Well, um, is that just simply a passage of time, or is this is was there something? else that contributed to... Well, I think one of the things that happened in the United States generally is, and I'm going to answer the question about his, his Price's role in the development of rock climbing, but I think one of the things that happened, particularly in Yosemite, was that um, John Dolithay claimed to have taught himself rock climbing and that he hadn't done any climbing in Europe. So... He just sort of presented a bunch of ideas, <clears throat> and I'm not I'm not disputing uh, Salathay's statement about that either. But he just sort of presented a bunch of ideas that were current in Europe, almost as if they were his own. So there was this disconnect mm-hmm. that happened. But you make a good point because Preuss himself didn't have a successor. Preuss's climbing partner Hans Dolfer, who introduced the use of pitons and for aid. Repel inspection. He uh, he carried a drill, but never used it. Uh, he used uh, pitons to make um, tension traverses, and was you know, Price said also was a better climber than him. Had many successors, no, you know, no, most notably in in Italy in the Dolomites, and uh, he died the year after Price did, but uh, in the First World War. Price's big contribution was to a complex ethical discussion about what is climbing and what isn't climbing. And it came at a time when pitons became really numerous in the Alps all of a sudden because uh, of the introduction of the carabiner, which allowed you to actually use the piton effectively. Before that, they were like picture hook pitons or a ring piton. And to use a ring piton, you either had to untie, thread the rope through the ring and tie back in, or use a little hemp sling that you kept in your jacket pocket to tie around the climbing rope and keep climbing, which were obviously pretty desperate <laughs> gambits. But the carabiner suddenly made the use of uh, pitons really, really safe and easy. And so suddenly there were many, many, many more. And so the fear was, and, and there, was no, there were no grading systems. There was no accepted sense of what is climbing and what isn't climbing. And so a bit, something called the Piton controversy, a big controversy about this subject came up. There were people going, well, it doesn't really matter. I mean, rock climbers can go off and, you know, 
just use pitons to make ladders up the cliff. Mountaineering is really where it's at. Rock climbing just should never be a sport. There were other people who said that if you use three pitons to stand on in a pitch, it's still free climbing, but four, if you use four, it's not. <laughs> and to this contro- controversy, Preuss is saying, no, there's such a thing as free climbing, and free climbing is just using the holds on the rock. And by sticking to that sort of existential view of climbing, that climbing is something else than the use of, of equipment, Preuss made a tremendous contribution to the uh, the development of climbing style in the Alps in particular. How hard was he climbing on, on these ascents in the current grading system? What was 13C. The, what was he, <laughs> no, he was, um, <laughs> well, there's two, <laughs> there's two. Yeah, but that uh, got downgraded, I think. <laughs> it got downgraded, yeah. yeah. Um, they found a knee bar well, in it's, that one. It's, it's a really grade. interesting question because grading system kind of didn't really become a thing until the, the 1920s when they became an obsession for climbers in the Alps. So when Preuss was describing climbs, he had to say, it's, well, it's really difficult. I think it's as difficult as this other climb or harder. And so raids were kind of, they were sort of weren't known, but some of the stuff he soloed is graded 10A possible. So that would sort of have been the upper end of the grading system. Although there were problems that were being done in, in the, uh, at the local crags around Munich uh, that were graded, that are now graded 511. And, and, but I think his really big climbs, he was climbing about 5859. But right. uh, like some of these climbs are, would give some modern climbers who weren't used to you know, climbing on loose rock or you know, weird limestone or the exposure. Uh, definitely uh, pause for thought. Like they were enormous climbs up big, intimidating faces, like the uh, west face of the Totenkirchel. It's as hard as probably like the east buttress of El Capitan, which isn't like a world-beating climb, but be hard enough uh, on site in you know rope sole shoes. The other thing is these were the hardest climbs that were being done. Like there weren't other climbs that were harder than the ones Preuss was doing. That's pretty incredible. You know, one, one thing that you just mentioned about his his main partner that uh, going on to perish in World War One is it does remind me that, you know, that that did cause just World War One in the in the losses of a generation, you right. know, I think, kind of caused a lot of these movements to come to a grinding halt because the ideas died with so many of the climbers. And it makes me think of um, Wade Davis's book, Into the Silence, you know, t- talking about Mallory and, and his cohort having come out of the World War One just decimated. And, um, you know, so I, I feel like maybe the the obscurity of Preuss, at least for, for a while, might have occurred just because of that. I mean, so many well, ideas perished in that war as well as, as just humans. Well, yeah. And in addition to humans, uh, what what uh, what perished was uh, much of the uh, the culture and um the purity of the, um, the Eastern uh, Alps Dolomites themselves. You uh, you go to you still go to place. I was there not long ago, and you still see uh, the remains of fortifications extremely high up in the Dolomites, and the tops of mountains were blown to bits. Valleys were you know filled with poison gas. Entire forests were cut down. Uh, local populations were were slaughtered, and tens of thousands of soldiers died fighting in exactly the same places where all this climbing was happening. Mm-hmm. So 
then after World War One, you know, people look at the mountains and you know they're covered in all this you know, stuff that's left over from the war and all these all this devastation has occurred. It, like the discussion of, you know, if we use twenty pitons on this mountain, are we going to destroy it? Just seems absurd, right? Right, right. So you totally. make this this movement from from Preuss to really the next climber in the in the development of the great styles of rock climbing. Um, before it's sort of development of rock climbing passes over to the U.S. in the 1950s, is Emilio Camici, who uses 160 pitons on a single climb. Um, yeah, with Preuss, definitely a vision of, uh, of climbing, at least a vision of climbing in, in the Alps kind of died. But some of, uh, you know, he had contacts in England and certainly, you know, English climbing continue to develop along those lines. And there were pockets in, where, you know, there was places in Australia and in between the wars where there were entire clubs that only ex only free soloed and looked at rock climbing at, or with ropes as just sort of a non-thing. But certainly the war, like a lot of climbers, a lot of talent and a lot of different visions about what climbing could or ought to be, you know, died in the war. And this is something Messner brings up if Preuss hadn't died in 1913, just before the war started, and had lived to the 20s or 30s, would he have, as he matured, been able to write more, influence people more? I mean, it's a it's an unknown. Tell us about his death. It can't. Well, as I say, it was in it was in 1913. It was in it was late in the season. He tried to break into uh, climbing in the Western Alps, and he had this vision of um, this route that's now known as the Puteret Integral. It's the longest ridge in the Mont Blanc range. And it's just a spectacular climb that takes in all these like big granite towers and mixed uh, mixed routes and you know the last parts of it are on high altitude. There were parts of it that just he probably would never have succeeded at. But he was trying to do different sections of it so that he could put it together later. But He'd been really stymied by the bad weather, and he'd really wanted to make his name in the in the uh, range. And he, the end of the season was coming. He didn't have a lot of really spectacular routes to uh, to talk about in the the lectures he gave, with, from which he earned a living, going around showing these lecture slides, talking about the climbs that he did. And he was in this hut with some friends, and he saw that ridge this uh ridge on uh, the the north north ridge of the mandelkogel and it was close to his house he'd been sick he'd had all these problems with the season he tried to talk some friends into trying it and then he didn't uh they went home he went up there and uh went to uh free solo the route the weather was very bad and the fact is that not much is known about exactly what happened while he was up there he disappeared. Uh, eventually, uh, climbing friends came to look for him. They found the body under three feet of snow at the bottom of the climb. He fell from very high up on the route. But it's not, it's not as certain as uh, some people have said you know, where exactly he was. But many years later, people found some equipment. You know, they found a rusted penknife that was partly open. They found some... Uh, some rope 
So the myth, a myth started that he'd been having lunch and cutting an apple and, you know, he dropped a pen knife and he lunged for the pen knife and just uh, followed it to his demise. Uh, it's kind of an unlikely scenario. In any case, there's no evidence for it. But uh, people were really surprised. You know, they're re people are surprised when three soloists fall, uh, even though it ha it's happened to quite a lot of them. Did that? Uh, did, did his death put? A, was it a, a blast of cold water on on some of his ideas? Yeah, I think I think so. Was, yeah. I think so because he had close friends like uh, who were had warned him already many times, and in one sort of disturbing narrative, a friend of his is climbing with with him and somebody else and Preuss is soloing and Preuss is like really sketching a lot, uh, which is the thing soloists all say they never do, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, so that's a kind of disturbing kind of, uh, kind of image. And also that I think there was, he was very ambitious and being this guy who did these like incredible routes because when he did the, uh, the first ascent of the east face of the Campanile Basso. Before that, everyone had just said this climb is impossible. And he had to kind of equal that in a way, I think, in his own mind. And people were, uh, they kind of just thought he would go and do these things and he wouldn't die. But I think some of his friends were, were much more worried about him. And yeah, I mean, like Cassine, you know, Ricardo Cassine, who in his, description of the history of uh, climbing in the Eastern Alps. It says, Preuss was a rat man who just threw himself at it, anything as soon as he saw it, which wasn't at all true. But the fact that he did die did discredit his views. But he did so many, many thousands of climbs, like literally thousands of climbs. You know, writing the book, it, like it became actually difficult to go, okay, I can't really talk about all these climbs no one will know about. I'm just going to say that on this day, he did 10 or 12 of these uh, enormous dolomite walls in one day. Did your research for this book involve you going to repeat any of these climbs? Um, I have repeated uh, a couple of them, notably the uh, the west face of the uh, Totenkirchel, which he, he free soloed, and uh, the east face of the Campanile Basso. But these are, these climbs are like, they're very different now than they were when uh, he did them, right? There's a lot more fixed protection. He uh, climbed around a lot on a wall, on a face, like looking for an easier way, like on a limestone face, you know, you can traverse around. So um, you don't really get, uh, all, you don't always get a similar kind of experience, but uh, I have climbed a lot on, or a fair amount, on uh, on climbed rock in the Canadian Rockies. And the idea of sort of doing some of the stuff that he did on that kind of rock, you know, new routes, lots of loose rock around, steep, exposed, no way to get rescued <laughs> if you get stranded. Right. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty wild stuff. So, um, you know, you, you've immersed yourself in this project uh, for a while. You said you'd been thinking about it even before that. I, I just read so many parallels into, you know, what he was into and comparing it to climbing culture now. Mm -hmm. um, what what do you think about um, how it's kind of influenced you or what, what are your takeaways in terms of the way you look at climbing? Did it, did it change your 
just outlook or inspire you in any way or, or make you think uh, differently about how you climb? Yeah, absolutely. It did. I, like I've never really been a, a free soloist. You know, we've all had times when we started, when we'd done a climb, and, you know, dozens of times had some local crag and done it without a rope, but I've never, you know, pursued it as a, uh, as a kind of discipline myself. It made me think that many of the things that we're facing in climbing are actually have actually repeated themselves in the past, that there is an eternal struggle between the use of tools and rejection of tools. It's not really, it's not really totally resolved in climbing yet. And it also made me think that uh, about the role of media and promotion of people, right? That's like, I guess that's one thing when you think of Alex Honnold is that Paul Price was, he was a basically a professional free solo. That's, you know, he made his money talking about the climbs that he did. He needed to seem like he was doing new and exciting things. He needed to seem like his ideas were viable. Uh, he was very much influenced by the emerging uh, climbing media at the time he published in the climbing media. He was very interested in photography, uh, not the kind that had existed before then where you sort of pose on a glacier and you just take some pictures like that. But With your Alpine style? Yeah, because that was all, all you, the only kind of photography that was possible. But with the introduction of uh, small handheld cameras, there were these pictures you could take they like from the modern point of view they're not that they're not very great pictures but people found them like really exciting at the time because they'd been taken right in the midst of a a climb so he was able to promote himself so it's similar that way and i suppose also just the issue of you know what how much it's worth risking <laughs> in climbing right that like there's a there's always a narrative in the sort of oral cemetery of climbing, the narrative is always that it was worth it, but people were just totally devastated. Their lives were never the same after uh, after Preuss died. And uh, I've seen that happen too. Uh, Mark Twain, I think, was the one who said that history doesn't repeat itself, but it runs. Yes. <laughs> and um, that's, that's certainly the case here. Um, one of the other para uh, or just themes, I guess, uh, between these two parallel worlds that we live in is it seems as though climbing has this um, consistent impending sense of doom that the future is of our sport is yes. at stake. <laughs> and, um, you know, if, if too many pitons show up in the Alps and it's all ruined and, uh, you know, we may as well take up golf or something stupid like that. But, but uh, again, it's, it's, um, we, we continue to have this sense that, uh, the future is bleak in some way um, because of how much change is happening and, or just changes in general in the sport. But it, it doesn't seem to be the case ever. Well, I think one of the things with Preuss, and you see it also in the careers of the people who created big wall climbing in the 1930s in, uh, in Italy, especially many of whom, like Emilio Camici, were fascists. There was a parallel between this sense of something is going to sweep all this away, that there are threats to our way of life and not just the climbing. And then this kind of bleeds into the mood in climbing sometimes, for sure, as it did uh, in Austria in, uh, in the early part of the 19th century. People were afraid of what was going to happen next. People were dreading things that were happening politically. 
And uh, so, in, in their case, in their case, they were spot on, though. In dreading, their case, they, they dreading were spot what was on. about to happen. But people, was, yeah. people, yeah. we're just worried about the Olympics yeah. in Tokyo. Yeah, but people like they see the Olympics as you know part of globalization. And I remember, uh, I guess, in my generation of climbing, I remember when bolts were introduced in larger numbers in the 1980s. There was definitely people were talking about you know, this popularization of everything was going to was part of the destruction of the environment and all this kind of stuff. So, I think the the mood of the times d- does affect us a bit, and like I think the same with the Olympics and sport climbing, right? Like the, People are dreading that, I guess, a bit because, you know, or like they're dreading the indoor climbing scene because now everybody will get to climb. That would be terrible. <laughs> what do you think Price would think of the Olympics? I mean, by by that, I mean climbing in the Olympics. Well, the curious thing about Price was that he always wanted climbing to be a sport. And in the direct translations of what he wrote, He's constantly saying sport climbing, sport climbing is this, sport climbing is that. Of course, he means the opposite in some ways of what sport climbing was. But in other ways, he's talking about a sport, a sport of you know, pure, pure movement. And he was involved in other competitive sports as well. But I think it's just so, it's so impossible to re- for me to sort of think about what, like what we have now in indoor climbing. I think probably he wouldn't care because it's all happening in, indoors. You know, wouldn't have been affecting climbing outside. He he was very competitive. He liked to compete with other climbers. You know, like in many ways, this like so many things about how we, we view the kinds of climbs he was really interested in changed a lot in the 1930s. And then now we look at limestone so totally differently than, than they did then, right? Like, the idea of like doing a big eight climbing wall on a limestone wall just kind of doesn't exist anymore. Uh, well, thanks for, for, for coming in. Uh, Dave Smart is the editorial director of Gripped Magazine. And the book is called Paul Preuss, Lord of the Abyss. And it's available now, right, Dave? Uh, indeed it is, yeah. Where, where would be the best place to buy it? Uh, Rocky Mountain Books. It's uh, rmb.ca. Okay. And that's the direct thing, but I'm sure it's everywhere, Amazon, all those places. Yes, it is, yeah. Yeah, well, thanks a lot for, for coming on the show. Anything you'd like to add, uh, Andrew? Uh, no, uh, that was a great conversation, and um, I have a copy of your book sitting on my desk right here. I'm about halfway through it, so um, and it's it's awesome. So thanks for sharing uh, with our audience about Paul Price. Okay, thanks very much. If you have a comment, topic suggestion, or just a good bit of climbing trivia, join us at our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash runoutpodcast, or drop us a line at our webpage, runoutpodcast.com.